and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. Well, I'm David Cox, okay? And I'm Josh Matheson, okay? And this week we are looking at the fifth chapter of Animal Farm, okay? <laughs> thought I'd Animal do a Farm, in. okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm watched South Park for a while, I need to. <laughs> David's already concocting some kind of uh, uh, R&B mashup with some MKs in it. I really want. I, th- I I really want to do an Animal Farm sea shanty, but I feel Ooh, like when yeah. I start, I, I oh, it'll, it'll take a bit longer than what I normally do. <laughs> it might require some effort. Because I mean. the good sea shanties have got good harmonies, and yes, also absolutely. the bas- and also there's the basso profundo harmony you normally have at the sea shanty, which is like <laughs> I can't I can't even do it. <laughs> so I don't know how I'd do that. Well, last week was a pretty action-packed chapter, actually. We had Jones and his men storming Animal Farm with their one gun, apparently, and yeah. clubs. Mm. And the animals, because uh, Snowball had been reading war literature, managed to lure the men into a stealth attack of sorts. Where the pigs and Multi-layer. all the big animals then ran in and started kicking them, mm. and the animals eventually drove the humans away. But with Boxer unfortunately nearly killing a stable boy, then I believe Snowball got a very very high level medal, and then the one casualty, which was a sheep, got a lower level Second medal, class. even though Second he class died citizen. and Snowball didn't. So we're kind of yeah. starting to see the kind of North Korean dictator war medals all down the front and down the trouser leg because oh, yeah. there's not we... enough room on the jacket anymore. <laughs> we imagined what would take what would be in the military parade. Yeah. <laughs> like Combine Harvester and all the ducks and then all like just going up and up and up until the very end. And then all the pigs are on chairs. On I think the, the cat would have the cat would have her own float. Yeah. Yeah. Molly would be Carnival Queen. Yeah, she'd be the the beauty queen, kind of Marilyn Monroe, kind of like... Very much so. We can see that Animal Farm is starting to build tradition and history into the dialogue and the rhetoric of the new regime in order to build a sense of patriotism and paying the ultimate price for what we are building. So they're basically trying to nation build by using this war, which they commemorate by firing the gun every year or whatever it is on the anniversary of it. There's that sense of, you know, they obviously they say that history is sort of told by the victors. And it, you, can yeah, already tell, you can already tell that if, if Animal Farm ever started a little school, how they would frame their history yes. and who would be on the top of it and the what days we celebrate. drove away <laughs> the evil men. And That's how the dogs yeah. are being taught currently. The ones Probably. that got taken away. Yeah. Is it, um, <clears throat> do you remember the Simpsons and they're trying to train um, Sam's little helper? Yeah. And she's on the, um, or he's on the, like, I was on like the gurney and has the eyes like stretched open and he's watching like, like it, it, visions of like nukes going off. I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing that's what they're doing. But just with like some some sort of <laughs> just some beat brainwashing of, beat of footage of the, um, the battle that took part that someone just managed endless to amounts of, LSD and mind control CIA drugs and yeah because yeah. <laughs> they might have to, they might have ketamine if it's like horse tranquilizer <laughs> they might that's true what have you this come become snowball? very dark <laughs> well that means like, uh, 
<laughs> on that note, on ketamine, so we dive into chapter five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is called the ketamine farm. No, <laughs> they don't have names. We know. Chapter five. As winter drew on, Molly became more and more troublesome. She was late for work every morning and excused herself by saying that she had overslept and she complained of mysterious pains, although her appetite was excellent. On every kind of pretext, she would run away from work and go to the drinking pool, where she would stand foolishly gazing at her own reflection in the water. But there were also rumours of something more serious. One day, as Molly strolled blithely into the yard, flirting her long tail and chewing at a stalk of hay, Clover took her aside. Now, Clover hasn't said anything to date. No, she? she hasn't. That is a horse, right? Yes, Clover is meant to represent the female working class. Just as so the female equivalent represents. of boxer. Yes. Right. So exactly. can we make, can we make her? What's the line? It's, it's like you ate my mother. Yes, I am. Just Jesse Wallace slash Barbara <laughs> Windsor. That's yeah, whatever, whatever. Get out of my pub. Yeah, out of my pub. <laughs> Peggy Mitchell. But make it like really abrasive as well. Like I know that Clover's meant to be actually really nice because she like, you know, cuddles ducklings and stuff, but I just love the idea of her having quite a harsh voice. She's an East Ender, doesn't mean she's not salt of the earth. Yeah, yeah. charitable and Yeah, it's true. Very true. Molly, she said, I have something very serious to say to you. This morning I saw you looking over the edge that divides Animal Farm from Foxwood. One of Mr. Pilkington's men was standing on the other side of the hedge. And uh, I, I was a long way away, but I am almost certain I saw this. He was talking to you and you were allowing him to stroke your nose. What does that mean, Molly? He he didn't. I wasn't. It wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what I forgot Molly was so debonair. <laughs> yeah. I'd also Christ. just love the idea of her just going, well, I had an itch on my nose and nobody on this bloody farm has a hand to scratch it. <laughs> Cried Molly, beginning to prance about and paw the ground. Molly, look me in the face. Do you give me your word of honour that that man was not stroking your nose? It isn't true, repeated Molly, but she could not look Clover in the face. And the next moment she took to her heels and galloped away into the field. A thought struck Clover. Without saying anything to the others, she went to Molly's stall and turned over the straw with her hoof. Hidden under the straw was a little pile of lump sugar and several bunches of ribbon of different colours. Contraband. It is, it is. Three days later, Molly disappeared. For some weeks, nothing was known of her whereabouts. Then the pigeons reported that they had seen her on the other side of Willingdon. She was between the shafts of a smart dog cart, painted red and black, which was standing outside a public house. A fat, red-faced man in cheek breeches and gaiters, who looked like a publican, was stroking her nose and feeding her with sugar. Her coat was newly clipped, and she wore a scarlet ribbon, round her forelock. She appeared to be enjoying herself, so the pigeon said. None of the animals ever mentioned Molly again. In January, there came bitterly hard weather. The earth was like iron, 
and nothing could be done in the fields. Many meetings were held in the big barn, and the pigs occupied themselves with planning out the work of the coming season. It had come to be accepted that the pigs, who were manifestly cleverer than the other animals, should decide all questions of farm policy, though their decisions had to be ratified by a majority vote. This arrangement would have worked well enough if it had not have been for the disputes between Snowball and Napoleon. These two disagreed at every point where disagreement was possible. If one of them suggested sowing a bigger acreage with barley, the other was certain to demand a bigger acreage of oats, and if one of them said that such and such a field was just right for cabbages, the other would declare that it was useless for anything except roots. Each had his own following, and there were some violent debates. At the meetings, Snowball often won over the majority by his brilliant speeches, but Napoleon was better at canvassing support for himself in between times. He was especially successful with the sheep. Of late, the sheep had taken to bleating, four legs good, two legs bad, both in and out of season, and they often interrupted the meeting with this. <laughs> It was noticed that they were especially liable to break into four legs good, two legs bad at crucial moments in snowball speeches. <laughs> I love that. They're just interrupting with the stuff. It's like, uh-huh, yeah, cool. Mm, yeah, good. I wonder good. if Napoleon's <laughs> like trained them. Do you know what I mean? Like every time they do it, he's got like a little like hand cue or something to cue them to do it. Like, yeah, like yeah. a little they trotter. Get... Yeah. Um, image on like a on like a he does a little like head like a little lip scratch or something and then they all know they're getting an apple afterwards or something for for helping him out snowball had made close study of some back numbers of farmer and stock breeder which he had found in the farmhouse and was full of plans for innovations and improvements he talked learnedly about field drains silage and basic slag I, I can't not laugh at basic slag, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm too immature slag. not to... Like, I know, like the basic sort ba- of It's the funny. most basic I get over the fact that there's such thing as a slag heap, but a basic is just like... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basic. And had worked out a complicated scheme for all the animals to drop their dung directly in the fields at a different spot every day to save the labour of cartage. Napoleon produced no schemes of his own, but said quietly that snowballs would come to nothing, and seemed to be biding his time. But of all their controversies, none was so bitter as the one that took place over the windmill. In the long pasture, not far from the farm buildings, there was a small knoll, which was the highest point on the farm. After surveying the ground, Snowball declared that this was just the place for a windmill, which could be made to operate a dynamo and supply the farm with electrical power. This would light the stalls and warm them in winter, and would also run a circular saw, a chaff cutter, a mangel slicer and an electric milking machine. Now, I don't know much about renewable energy, but I feel like one windmill isn't going to be able to do all that. (laughs) Heaters use so much electricity. (laughs) They do, yeah, yeah, yeah. The animals had never heard of anything of this kind before, for the farm was an old-fashioned one and had only the most primitive machinery, 
and they listened in astonishment while Snowball conjured up pictures of fantastic machines which would do their work for them while they grazed at their ease in the fields or improved their minds with reading and conversation. Within a few weeks, Snowball's plans for the windmill were fully worked out. The mechanical details came mostly from three books which had belonged to Mr Jones. 1,000 useful things to do about the house, every man his own bricklayer, and electricity for beginners. <laughs> An idiot's guide to building a windmill. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd love to think it's like it comes free with like the sort of set you did in like science at school. Comes with the reader's so diet. Little, board, little clips and there's the little bulb and the little motor <laughs> yeah. and there's like a little switch. Yeah, the little crocodile. Like, look, look, <laughs> look at it. <laughs> it's magic. On, off, on, off, off, off. <laughs> I do love the titles of those books though. That was great. What was the first one? A Thousand Things... A thousand useful things to do about the house. Amazing. I mean, it's a little dodgy DIY book. We could all have done with that during lockdown. We should do it for our, one of our books. <laughs> we, should. we should. That's our next book, everyone. Yeah. Number 962. Snowball used as his study a shed which had once been used for incubators and had a smooth wooden floor suitable for drawing on. He was closeted there for hours at a time with his books held open by a stone, and with a piece of chalk gripped between the knuckles of his trotter, he would move rapidly to and fro, drawing in line after line and uttering little whimpers of excitement. Gradually the plans grew into a complicated mass of cranks and cogwheels, covering more than half the floor, which the other animals found completely unintelligible but very impressive. All of them came to look at Snowball's drawings at least once a day. Even the hens and ducks came, and were at pains not to tread on the chalk marks. Only Napoleon held aloof. He had declared himself against the windmill from the start. One day, however, he arrived unexpectedly to examine the plans. He walked heavily round the shed, looked closely at every detail of the plans, and snuffed at them once or twice, then stood for a little while contemplating them out of the corner of his eye. Then suddenly he lifted his leg, urinated over the plans, and walked out without <laughs> uttering a word. <laughs> Amazing. I just love that like everything was so intelligent in terms of like he's obviously going, right, what can I do to intelligently shoot this down? And then he's obviously not come up with anything. So he's like, screw it, sabotage your ears. And he just... And he cocks his he leg. He just resorts to just feral animal-like behaviour instead. <laughs> Brilliant. I'd, yeah. I'd love to see that scene in any like stage adaptation. Yeah. I mean, it's the <laughs> ultimate power move, isn't it? Could you imagine yeah. walking so. in yeah. and being like, oh, yeah. this guy's smarter than me. Let me just pee on him. <laughs> the whole farm was deeply divided on the subject of the windmill. Snowball did not deny that to build it would be a difficult business. Stone would have to be carried and built up into walls. Then the sails would have to be made, and after that there would be need for dynamos and cables. How these were to be procured, Snowball did not say. But he maintained that it could all be done in a year. And thereafter, he declared, so much labour would be saved that the animals would only need to work three days a week. 
Napoleon, on the other hand, argued that the great need of the moment was to increase food production, and that if they wasted time on the windmill, they would all starve to death. The animals formed themselves into two factions, under the slogan, Vote for Snowball and Three Days a Week, and Vote for Napoleon and the Full Manger. Benjamin was the only animal who did not side with either faction. He refused to believe either that food would become more plentiful or that the windmill would save work. Windmill or no windmill, he said, life would go on as it had always gone on. That is, badly. It's <laughs> a grumpy Benjamin gut, really is my spirit animal. I just swear, <laughs> he's, just like, he's just like, we're all just plodding along. Everything. What is it about? Rubbish. What is it about donkeys? I think both Orwell and A. A. Milne have decided that donkeys are just really glum animals. Because oh, they don't seem like that. Yeah, but they they seem quite like happy. But it's probably because they're grey and they're used for a lot of they they use mostly for work, aren't they? Like and they're I suppose their pace is quite like yeah they plod along and they kind of seem to just take things in their stride. Apart from the disputes over the windmill, there was the question of the defence of the farm. It was fully realised that though the human beings had been defeated in the Battle of the Cowshed, they might make another and more determined attempt to recapture the farm and reinstate Mr Jones. They had all the more... No, they didn't. (laughs) They had all the more reason for doing so because the news of their defeat had spread across the countryside and made the animals on the neighbouring farms more restive than ever. As usual, Snowball and Napoleon were in disagreement. According to Napoleon, what the animals must do was to procure firearms and train themselves in the use of them. According to Snowball, they must send out more and more pigeons and stir up rebellion among the animals on the other farms. The one argued that if they could not defend themselves, they were bound to be conquered. The other argument that if rebellions happened everywhere, there would be no need to defend themselves. The animals listened first to Napoleon, then to Snowball, and could not make up their minds which was right. Indeed, they always found themselves in agreement with the one who was speaking at the moment. At last, the day came when Snowball's plans were completed. At the meeting on the following Sunday, the question of whether or not to begin work on the windmill was to be put to the vote. When the animals had assembled in the big barn, Snowball stood up, and though occasionally interrupted by bleating from the sheep, (laughs) set forth his reasons for advocating the building of the windmill. Then Napoleon stood up to reply. He said very quietly that the windmill was nonsense, and that he advised nobody to vote for it and promptly sat down again. He had spoken for barely 30 seconds and seemed almost indifferent as to the effect he produced. At this, Snowball sprang to his feet and, shouting down the sheep, who had begun bleating again, broke into a passionate appeal in favour of the windmill. Until now, the animals had been about equally divided in their sympathies, but in a moment Snowball's eloquence had carried them away. In glowing sentences he painted a picture of animal farm as it might be when sordid labour was lifted from the animals' backs. 
his imagination had now run far beyond chaff cutters and turnip slicers. Electricity, he said, could operate threshing machines, ploughs, harrows, rollers and reapers and binders, besides supplying every stall with its own electric light, hot and cold water and an electric heater. By the time he had finished speaking, there was no doubt as to which way the vote would go. But just at this moment, Napoleon stood up, and casting a peculiar sidelong look at Snowball, uttered a high-pitched whimper of a kind no one had ever heard him utter before. At this there was a terrible baying sound outside, and nine enormous dogs wearing brass-studded collars came bounding into the barn. They dashed straight for Snowball, who only sprang from his place just in time to escape their snapping jaws, In a moment, he was out of the door and they were after him. Too amazed and frightened to speak, all the animals crowded through the door to watch the chase. Snowball was racing along the long pasture that led to the road. He was running as only a pig can run, but the dogs were close on his heels. Suddenly, he slipped and it seemed certain that they had him. Then he was up again, running faster than ever. Then the dogs were gaining on him again. One of them all but closed his jaws on Snowball's tail, but Snowball whisked it free just in time. Then he put on an extra spurt and, with a few inches to spare, slipped through the hole in the hedge and was seen no more. Silent and terrified, the animals crept back into the barn. In a moment the dogs came bounding back. At first no one had been able to imagine where these creatures came from but the problem was soon solved. They were the puppies whom Napoleon had taken away from their mothers and reared privately. Though not yet full-grown, they were huge dogs and as fierce-looking as wolves. They kept close to Napoleon. It was noticed that they wagged their tails to him in the same way as the other dogs had been used to do to Mr Jones. Napoleon, with the dogs following him, now mounted on to the raised portion of the floor where Major had previously stood to deliver his speech. He announced that from now on the Sunday morning meetings would come to an end. They were unnecessary, he said, and wasted time. In future, all questions relating to the working of the farm would be settled by a special committee of pigs, presided over by himself. These would meet in private and afterwards communicate their decisions to the others. The animals would still assemble on Sunday mornings to salute the flag, sing Beasts of England and receive their orders for the week, but there would be no more debates. In spite of the shock that Snowball's expulsion had given them, the animals were dismayed by this announcement. Several of them would have protested if it could have found the right arguments. Even Boxer was vaguely troubled. He set his ears back, shook his forelock several times, and tried hard to marshal his thoughts. But in the end he could not think of anything to say. Some of the pigs themselves, however, were more articulate. Four young porkers in the front row uttered shrill squeals of disapproval, and all four of them sprang to their feet and began speaking at once. But suddenly, the dogs sitting round Napoleon let out deep menacing growls, and the pigs fell silent and sat down again. Then the sheep broke out into a tremendous bleating of four legs good, two legs bad, which went on for nearly a quarter of an hour, 
and put an end to any chance of discussion. Afterwards, Squealer was sent round to the farm to explain the new arrangement to the others. Comrades, he said. Oh, I forgot about Kermit. <laughs> do you know what? That's, that's why it's good. There's, that's one of the good things about there being lots of characters is you do just generally go like, I can't remember what that one sounded like. <laughs> so occasionally you come back in and you're like, oh, yes. I also just love that something so unbelievably horrifying and terrifying has just happened. And then the first person to speak afterwards is Kermit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that was Orwell's intention, but that's what we've gone with. That's um, essentially our MO of the podcast, though. So there you go. Comrades, <laughs> he said. I trust that every animal here appreciates the sacrifice that Comrade Napoleon has made in taking his extra labor upon himself. Do not imagine, comrades, that leadership is a pleasure. On the contrary, it is a deep and heavy responsibility. No one believes more firmly than Comrade Napoleon that all animals are equal. He would be only too happy to let you make your decisions for yourselves. But sometimes you might make the wrong decisions, comrades. And then where should you be? Suppose you had decided to follow Snowball with his moonshine of windmills. Snowball, who, as we now know, is no better than a criminal. He fought bravely at the Battle of the Cowshed, said somebody. Bravery is not enough, said Squealer. Loyalty and obedience are more important. And as to the Battle of the Cowshed, I believe the time will come when we shall find that Snowball's part in it was much exaggerated. Discipline, comrades. Iron discipline. That is the watchword for today. One false step and our enemies would be upon us. Surely, comrades, you do not want Jones back. Once again, this argument was unanswerable. Certainly the animals did not want Jones back. If the holding of debates on Sunday mornings was liable to bring him back, then the debates must stop. Boxer, who had now had time to think things over, voiced the general feeling by saying, If Comrade Napoleon says it, it must be right. And from then on, he adopted the maxim, Napoleon is always right. In addition to his private motto of, I will work harder. By this time, the weather had broken and the spring ploughing had begun. The shed where Snowball had drawn his plans of the windmill had been shut up and it was assumed that the plans had been rubbed off the floor. Every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, the animals assembled in the big barn to receive their orders for the week. The skull of Old Major, now clean and fresh, had been disinterred from the orchard and set up on a stump at the foot of the flagstaff, beside the gun. After the hoisting of the flag, the animals were required to file past the skull in a reverent manner before entering the barn. Nowadays, they did not all sit together as they had done in the past. Napoleon, with Squealer and another pig named Minimus, who had a remarkable gift for composing songs and poems, sat on the front of the raised platform with the nine young dogs forming a semicircle around them and the other pigs sitting behind. The rest of the animals sat facing them in the main body of the barn. Napoleon read out the orders for the week in a gruff, soldierly style 
and after a single singing of Beasts of England, the animals dispersed. On the third Sunday after Snowball's expulsion, the animals were somewhat surprised to hear Napoleon announce that the windmill was to be built after all. <laughs> Much ado about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you could kind of tell he was just going to steal it, claim it as his own. Yeah, of course he is. Classic. He did not give any reason for having changed his mind, but merely warned the animals that this extra task would mean very hard work. It might even be necessary to reduce their rations. The plans, however, had all been prepared down to the last detail. A special committee of pigs had been at work upon them for the past three weeks. The building of the windmill, with various other improvements, was expected to take two years. That evening, Squealer explained privately to the other animals that Napoleon had never in reality been opposed to the windmill. On the contrary, it was he who had advocated it in the beginning, and the plan which Snowball had drawn on the floor of the incubator shed had actually been stolen from among Napoleon's papers. The windmill was in fact Napoleon's own creation. Why then, asked somebody, had he spoken so strongly against it? Here, Squealer looked very sly. That, he said, was Comrade Napoleon's cunning. He had seemed to oppose the windmill simply as a manoeuvre to get rid of Snowball, who was a dangerous character and a bad influence. Now that Snowball was out of the way, the plan could go forward without his interference. This, said Squealer, was something called tactics. He repeated a number of times, Tactics, comrades, tactics! skipping round and whisking his tail with a merry laugh. The animals were not certain what the word meant, but Squealer spoke so persuasively, and the three dogs who happened to be with him growled so threateningly, that they accepted his explanation without further questions. End of chapter. <laughs> It was so much to unpack in that. Yeah. Where we kind of, it was weird that we were sort of going like, yeah, you know, it really requires uh, some authoritarian uh, behavior for the pigs, for for the other animals to to start questioning it. And then it just comes in like an absolute, like an absolute tidal wave of events. Yeah. Uh, But that's how insurrections happen. That's they happen terrifying. on a dime, like coups and all the rest of it. It's never this kind of like you, you often see like you could see the groundwork being laid with Napoleon stealing the puppies and other things like that. But yeah. when they go right, now's the time to hit. They happen so quickly. You only have to look at the coup that uh, t- the attempted coup what in Turkey a couple of years ago that just kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. In terms of like it, we're going. Yep, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to do it now. Like Myanmar right now is is experiencing a coup where the military yeah. just went in, and just went. No, nope, we don't accept the election results. We're taking over, and it happened like that. And that's just how these things always go down. Yeah, and just scary the thought that all that stuff's being sat on. Like you know, those those people are are in very prominent positions, but just hiding it so very well. He was nothing more than just you know a fellow po- politician offering the debates, but had all this stuff going on just under the surface, to which nobody knew. And then in one little cheeky whatever it was, what did it could describe it as a little whimper? They were they were in. Hearing stories like this makes you realise how fragile society and how fragile the state can be. And mm. this is why people don't, well, people who support him don't appreciate how dangerous the 6th of January was with 
the insurrection that's just happened in America. It's like the most vulnerable point of any democracy is the transference of power. That is always when somebody attacks, never in the middle of an established regime. And it's like you listen to this passage and, you know, four legs good, two legs bad is make America great again. Yeah. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's like slogan. Exactly. And and the dogs are the Proud Boys and your gun-toting kind of like Republican people who I'm noticed will be happily just grab their rifles and and go and start shooting on behalf of their leader. Like that's it's it's literally exactly what we've just seen. We're looking at lit charts for this book. Or is end up putting like the gap in just so I can wait for you guys to make your noises. Um, so noises. I want to pull out. Excuse me. Very I want to pull out a couple of things right from the start. So obviously we've had quite a, a central character so far leave right at the very start of this chapter with little Molly. She's finally decided that that the communist lifestyle isn't for her. She needs her sugar. She needs her ribbons, even if that comes with a master. And Molly leaving is a parallel to how many of the middle class simply left the USSR while they still could. If Snowball or Napoleon were to assess her motivations and the implications of her leaving, they'd likely say that Molly has bought into the narrative that she needs to strive to become a member of the ruling class in order to leave a successful life. Something that animalism tries to discount by insisting that class itself is silly. This is hypocritical, of course, as the pigs are becoming their own upper class. So they'd use, you know, their ability to describe her actions falls short because it's complete hypocrisy in terms of their own. But I think a lot of these middle class people were probably very well educated and kind of saw some of them, I think, could see where this was going and went, nope, this isn't for me. I'm going to get out while I can. Other people probably saw that their lifestyle worse off was was depleting yeah. was going down she's going hang on i like ribbons and i like sugar and you're telling me i can't have them do you know what see you later i'm gonna go somewhere where i can the, the, it's much easier to buy into the to an ideology if, if there's betterment involved and actually if the ideology even if it might even if you know in theory it would mean a better more equal society all around if you know that you're gonna have to take a hit then then i guess you're like oh okay well I guess it's either, it's, it's either, you know, I've got to be for the people or I've got to be for myself. Yeah. She was always for herself. Yeah, because if you're going to make society equal, then as you say, it's like, well, where do you meet? You probably meet in the middle, but that means some people are going to have to lose for others to gain. Mm. And if it was going to be an animal, it was going to be a cat. Because cats are wonderful, but we all know that they inherently just look out for themselves. Well, the cat is also meant to represent <clears throat> the middle classes as well, but I think she's meant to represent a slightly less vain more manipulative version of the middle class who kind of stick around but play both sides sneaky sly yeah, yeah. whereas Mo- molly was sneaky. never that sly was she, she no was pretty she much wasn't. as she came no yeah uh as we know snowball represents trotsky and what this whole thing with the, the windmill is meant to represent is the fact that trotsky had very grand plans to modernize the ussr and bring it into the modern world so this windmill is just meant to be a symbol of that attempt to modernize russia to to embrace technology and to kind of propel russia into kind of like being for the forefront of like science and technology and other things like that 
He would argue that, you know, the modernization like this is in line with the ideals of the revolution as all of the animals will benefit from putting in the work. And then as they enjoy the fruits of that work, they'll get more leisure time. And obviously leisure is a mark of being higher class. So the fact that he's saying that all animals will enjoy leisure time is meant to be this thing of like, well, everybody will be equal in that sense, rather than just, you know, rich people being able to enjoy time because they have money and poor people having to work constantly just to get by. Yeah. So in that sense, as we were saying before about how the more humanized the animals become, do they then become less animalist or the less, you know, less communist? He would argue, well, no, because this is for the equality of all. Therefore, it is at its root communist. Napoleon basically plays on the concerns of the lowest and the most uneducated, insisting that the modernization will come at the cost of resources, that in order to build the windmill, they will experience hunger. And I think that that is used so many times, particularly, you know, right now where they go, oh, no, you can't have that modern thing because deficit, because the country will go bankrupt and all this kind of stuff. And it is just playing to that lowest denominator. It's the lie that kind of Reagan and Thatcher said all the way back in the 70s of like believing that a country is run like a household where this is your incoming, this is your outgoing and you have to balance the books. Like countries don't work like that economically. A lot of the time what you invest is massively um, increases what is output infrastructure and investment in infrastructure actually leads to more money being made rather than there, rather than there being a deficit so it's yeah. it's not the same as a house it doesn't make sense but this is often how they try and dumb these things down to make people go you know if you've got a load of working class people who are struggling with debt what's the best way to make them fearful for the country in the future tell them that the country getting in debt oh well i know what debt is and i know how that feels and that's something that should be avoided did therefore we shouldn't modernize let's get rid of that let's oh no we can't afford a national health service in america because it will put us in debt but then we can afford trillions of dollars going to billionaires in tax cuts like it it's it's the lowest denominator just in order to set the agenda and scare people into wanting what you want instead i mean it's very depressing isn't it i mean when you when you look at this book you're reading it and you're like oh my god like this is exactly how humans and politics behaves in the real world. There's no hyperbole here. There's no exaggeration. This is this is literally how people behave. Yeah, there are concrete examples, multiple concrete examples of every event that's happened so far that we can make direct parallels to. Well, again, yeah. like drawing on the fact that, again, I studied this, let's say age 13 and 14 and the naivety of me at that age, even though I was like, you know, quite you know quite good sets and reasonably academic and stuff but i was so like um shielded from politics as in like i was lucky enough to be you know fairly comfortably off and the the ideas of these politics affected me whereas if you you could have been a child growing up in a war-torn country or an ex-communist country reading animal farm now reading animal farm having been a lot more sort of like aware of the global situation and different countries and knowing about the history again yeah it's really bleak and you don't it's it while it is again talking about animals being doing crazy stuff like that's what it boils down to it's quite silly but it's really hard to see it as as, as silly when it's like this sort of bleak like it's just cats and pigs running around on a farm and like if you're watching it from the top of a hill it probably looked quite funny but 
<laughs> yeah. Hearing it like this. And you understand like, yeah, what it represents. Exactly, yeah. It's really clever. So if you have any thoughts or opinions on this chapter, you can message us on thelazybookclub at gmail.com. Or if you've got something fun to say about this really <laughs> jolly chapter, you can do so on Twitter. Our handle is at lazybookclubpod. Yes, please tell us all of your favourite books and you can message us on Instagram with those as well if you'd like. Our handle is exactly the same, at lazybookclubpod. And I actually have one more thing that we can plug now because... What? From the 1st of March, <gasps> there is a bonus episode now up on Patreon. <gasps> and if you would like to access that, you can access it for the very small fee of $3. And that just helps support us and helps support the podcast. So if you go to Patreon, Lazy Book Club Pod, same as Twitter and Instagram, you will find us on there and you will find the extra episode on there as well. And you can get a little bit of Lazy Book Club extra. Extra. <laughs> we paid £28,000 for that jingle. Um. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. As usual, please do share, like, and rate this podcast. And we will see you Five next star. week for chapter six of Animal Farm, where hopefully something a little bit more happy happens. But I have a feeling it's all downhill it. from no. here. We're going to have to just come up with some really, really funny voices yeah. just to stop us all from topping I'm going to kill you where you lie. <laughs> we'll rely on daft voices and David's puns. <laughs> yes, and exactly. that will get us through. So join us next week for that. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.